I know this is an inexact thing. There's no X marks the spot on the floor, but I feel like I'm further back than I have been before. Maybe it's not just me. Okay. I suppose it doesn't matter. I'll just stand wherever the podium is. I didn't put it here. You probably don't need a reminder if you were at our banquet last night, but this week we do celebrate Valentine's Day, a holiday invented by a sinister cabal of confectioners, greeting card companies, and florists to fill in the four-month gap that otherwise exists between Christmas and Easter. That's a joke. I don't think that's really where it came from. Yeah, you can laugh. <laughs> I heard it, it's, it's true. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an important day, I suppose, depending on how you look at it. I might even get Abby a card. Probably not. I'm just saying that because she's not here. I, I'm almost certainly not going to get her anything. But <laughs> in all seriousness, Valentine's Day reminds me of the shallowness of the view of love that our contemporary culture so often has. These are numbers from this year, the most recent numbers published this week in USA Today from the National Retail Federation. The average American will spend $143.56 this year on Valentine's Day gifts for an aggregate total of $19.6 billion, with a B, dollars. And that's just slightly off the all-time high from a couple of years ago, 19.7 billion. And there's a constant effort of one-upsmanship with those Valentine's Day gifts. You need to make sure those flowers are sent to the office so that everyone can see that you got them. You need to get nicer and more expensive jewelry every year. We need to go to that restaurant that's really expensive and make sure that we get that reservation in time because it's that one that nobody can get into for six months. That's the one we want to be sure that we go to. And all of this ostensibly to show love in a society where real love and real commitment are increasingly watered down to the point of non-existence as our divorce rate, as the rising number of young people whose statistics show are not even interested in marriage to begin with demonstrate. Maybe this concern with appearances is all attributable to our obsession with youth and with beauty in our relationships. In the words of the poet Johnny Lee, we go looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love in too many faces. Some more statistics from an article from a few years ago in USA Today. Listed the top things that both sexes judge dates on. And at the top of the list, in the top five, for both men and women, teeth, hair, and clothes. Those were right at the top of the list. And unless we want to go castigating the younger generation for just how shallow and petty they are, or even if we just want to try to boil this down to only romantic relationships, judging by physical appearance is something that seeps into every aspect of our lives. A number 
of studies and a great deal of research bears this out. Studies show that tall people get paid more than shorter people. They also show that those who work out, women who wear makeup, and blonde women tend to make more money than their counterparts. Very handsome men are paid well. On the other hand, interestingly, very beautiful women face the opposite problem. They're discriminated against. They're usually paid less well because it's viewed that they got their job because of their looks. With all of that in mind, I want to begin tonight by noting two brief passages of Scripture. Now, we've been looking at some different stories and characters from the Old Testament on Sunday evenings, and we're going back to a couple that we looked at actually in our first Sunday night lesson, although we're looking at them in a different way tonight. But when I read these, you'll probably notice the connection between these passages right away. The first one is in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, where we find that a certain Kish had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. The other passage is the one that Brooks read a moment ago from 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse number 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I imagine you can all see the connection between those two verses. They're both concerned with physical appearance. And they show us that while our society may have taken it to a new extreme, that as with so many other things, the problems that plague us are common to humanity. They've been the common lot of all of us from the very beginning. People have a tendency to make judgments based solely by appearance. And they've been doing that same thing for hundreds and for thousands of years. In that light, the picture of Saul we have painted is interesting. You picture Saul. Saul is without equal in Israel. He's captain of the football team. Saul is the prom king. Saul is the big man on campus. Everybody looks at Saul and he just looks like a king. People admire him. They want to be like Saul. And yet here in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the very first verse, God says, I have rejected him. A little bit later on, Saul feels that rejection again, not just from God, but from the people. You remember this, when he hears the women singing the song, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. And ultimately, David is made king in his place. You see, throughout Scripture, we find God selecting people who are unlikely to carry out his purpose. Abraham was too old. Moses, he stuttered. Jonah ran away from God. Thomas doubted. These are not the types of people that you would expect God to 
hinge his hopes and his plans on, or at least they're not the types of people that you and I would be choosing if we were the ones making the selection. But Scripture tells us that God does that frequently. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we find him doing it again. See, God had a problem. He needed a replacement for Saul. Why replace Saul? We just read about him a moment ago. He seemed like a perfectly admirable person to have as king. He was, he was handsome. He was tall, a head taller than anyone else in Israel. He was a warrior. He was athletic. And initially, you might remember this from our lesson a few weeks ago, or if you weren't here, maybe you just know this. Initially, Saul possessed a lot of good qualities that he displayed. He was modest. He was humble. And he was popular. Even Samuel, as often as he butted heads with Saul, liked him personally a great deal. You note in 1 Samuel 16, verse number 1, when God speaks to him, it's actually because Samuel continued to mourn over Saul. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king? Everyone seemed to like Saul. Everyone was impressed with him. Everyone except God. See, God's problem with Saul was that when Saul faced a tough decision, and when he knew on the one hand what God's will was and what God wanted him to do, Saul, as often as not, simply didn't do what God wanted him to do. A great example of this is in chapter 15, pardon me, chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, beginning in verse number 5. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and camped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited for seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I haven't sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You've done foolishly. You haven't kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. See, when Saul was faced with a choice to follow God's instructions or to follow his own course of action, he acted based upon fear, fear of failure, fear that his enemies would destroy him, fear that the people were going to abandon him. 
seems that Saul feared just about everything except God. And so as a result of that, when times got tough, he was focused on anything and everything but pleasing God. God rejected Saul as king. And he went looking for someone after his own heart. Now, obviously, that person wasn't going to look necessarily, outwardly, anything like Saul. Saul wasn't the type of man as impressive as he was physically that pleased God. But we come to David, and David wasn't impressive at all physically. David's father, Jesse, evidently didn't even think very much of it. You remember this? Samuel comes down to Jesse's house, and he asks for all of Jesse's sons to be paraded before him there because God has told him that one of them is to be anointed as king. And he brings out every single one of them in order except David. He didn't even bother to call David out from the fields. He left him out there working the sheep. But Jesse wasn't alone in that evaluation of David. His older brother, Eliab, wasn't much impressed by him. You turn to chapter 17, read verse number 28. It says that Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, that is David. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. Of course, right after this is when David goes out to battle Goliath. And Goliath, you remember, wasn't impressed by David either. In verse number 42, the Philistine, Goliath, looked and saw David. He disdained him for he was but a youth. And then he starts to taunt him. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? He says in verse 44, Come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. See, David wasn't the first choice of anyone who met him. He wasn't even Samuel's first choice. You go back to chapter 15, and we see there, as was read a moment ago, when Eliab was paraded before, and this is chapter 16, pardon me. Samuel looked at Eliab, David's oldest brother, and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And that's when God says, Don't look on his outward appearance or his height. I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In spite of all outward appearance and the prejudgments that everyone else had made about David, God chose him because God looks at the heart. God isn't impressed by how handsome or how pretty we are. He isn't impressed by how much wealth we have. He isn't impressed by how we dress. He isn't impressed by how many degrees we have hanging on our wall or where we went to school. We saw a powerful example of that this morning. Even Aggies are acceptable before the Lord. God is looking into the heart of each and every person on this earth. Your heart, my heart, 
the hearts of our friends, the hearts of our neighbors, and he's seeking those, unlike Saul, who will be fully, completely, wholeheartedly committed to him, to his cause, to his purposes, to his goals. What does that mean for us to be fully and completely committed to him? I want to suggest briefly just three ways that we might draw closer to God, that we might strive to be people who are after his own heart. And incidentally, all three of these are demonstrated by David. We draw all of these from David, the man after God's own heart. Uh, First of all, if we're going to be people after God's own heart, our lives need to be built around God. The 105th Psalm, beginning in verse number 2, David writes, Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he's uttered. A person after God's own heart is one who seeks after God, one who, like David here, wants to be with God, loves worshiping God. They want to sing songs of praises to it. They want to gather in communion around the Lord's table. They want to, as the psalmist does here, recite his wondrous acts. Tell about the things that he's done, the difference that God has made in your life personally and all the things that we find him doing in Scripture. They want to glorify his name. So a person after God's own heart will spend their lives seeking after God and wanting to worship God. A second thing to know, if we're going to be people after God's own heart, we need to build our lives around his word. We again turn to the Psalms, this time to the 19th Psalm, uh, beginning in verse number 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. David was fanatical about making God's Word part of his life. And we usually think of fanatical or fanaticism as a bad word. I don't mean that as a bad thing. To be a fanatic just means to possess extreme zeal. That's what David had when it came to God's Word. He meditated upon God's law day and night. He wrote songs and he sang these songs praising God's Word. Whenever he needed counsel, the first place he looked for advice was to God's law. So if we're going to be people after God's heart, we need to have that same passion for Scripture driving our lives. We're not ever going to really understand God and be able to draw closer to Him if we don't take His Word into our hearts and let it mold us and shape us. That's why David wrote in another place, the 119th Psalm, a song we sing sometimes. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path third thing we want to know, to be people after God's own heart. We need to build our lives around God's people. 
An expert in the law once came to Jesus and asked him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus drew, if you were in our class this morning, he drew from Deuteronomy. We talked about this. And Tyler actually mentioned this in his sermon this morning. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second one, like unto it, is to love your neighbor as yourself. If I'm going to love God with all my heart, and if I'm going to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, then I need to love God's people the way that He loves His people. I need to learn to love others the same way that God loves them. That's something that David understood. You remember that after David rises to this degree of fame and Saul starts to hear the way that he's being held in regard, Saul becomes jealous. And Saul actually drives him from court and tries to kill him. And David's a wanted man. He's on the run then for a big part of his life. And on one occasion, he actually has the opportunity to get the drop on Saul. He could have killed him if he wanted to. Been rid of this whole problem. And when he's urged to do that, to save his own life, he responded, this is 1 Samuel 26, verse 9. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? See, for all his faults and for all of his failings, Saul was still appointed to his position by God. Saul had been chosen by God. In a similar way, all of us who are Christians have been chosen by God. We've been elected as His people. So if we're going to be people after God's heart, like David, we need to be careful how we treat those people who've been chosen by God. I don't want to talk about them behind their backs. I don't want to be unkind to them or about them. We can't do that and be guiltless. And we think about Saul, bear in mind, Saul wasn't an admirable man at all. That's not because Saul was some great and worthy figure that he deserved this sort of respect. He disobeyed God to such a great extent that he lost his kingdom. And yet David still refused to abuse, to misuse, to mistreat him in any way. How many of us have blemishes? imperfections, flaws in our lives. You don't have to raise your hand, but if we did, we all could. If you don't, your flaw is that you're a liar, at least to begin with. You've got one too. See, we're not all that much different from Saul when you get right down to it. And yet God has chosen us. And so he won't tolerate us being abused like that, and he won't tolerate me abusing you in any way like that. And I've seen churches where people fail to understand that concept. They'll sit down and, you know, did you hear what so-and-so did? Start talking about it. Or I've known of places where there might be two people sitting right across from the aisle, as close as Ken and Wayne are now. They might sing, oh, how I love Jesus at the top of their lungs, and maybe they haven't spoken in 50 years because of some falling out that they had a long time ago over some perceived slight. Those things are, are sin. And God won't 
tolerate us treating his people like that. That is not the behavior of a man or a woman after his heart. This list obviously isn't exhaustive. We could go on multiplying these sorts of characteristics here, but, but this is a good start. What we're talking about here, fundamentally, is to be people who are fully, completely, wholeheartedly committed to God. We've committed to building our lives around Him, committed to seeking His Word, committing to treating His people the way that He wants us to treat them. And I want to encourage you this evening, and encourage me too, all of us, to strive to be people after God's heart. Maybe you're here this evening and you've never committed to do that. If that's the case, I want to encourage you to make the choice, the decision to make that commitment this evening. Turn your life over to God. Be buried with the Lord in baptism. Be added to His people. More than likely, you're here this evening. You already are a Christian. Maybe you haven't been wholeheartedly committed to Him. You need to make changes in your life. If that's the case, whatever your need may be tonight, if we can help you in any way, you have the opportunity to make it known while we stand and sing.